If you are a Republican running for president in 2024, there is one question that you know you are going to have to answer. What do you think of Donald Trump being indicted on federal criminal charges? And you would think at this point that anyone entering the race for the Republican nomination would be prepared to answer that question. And you would be wrong. Today, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez announced that he is joining the pack of candidates running for the Republican nomination. He gave his first interview to Good Morning America, and that interview went like this. What did you make of the indictment? Yeah, I think one of the things that happened in Miami is people were hoping that, and some members of the press were even hoping that there would be anarchy. And I think what Miami did is what Miami has done. We have lowered homicides to the lowest level per capita. Sir, I asked you what you thought of the indictment. Well, and I want to talk about Miami. Did you read of the indictment? Course, but what, what, what I'm did, saying what is, did it say sure, to you? what did it say did. to you? I mean, I'm just trying to get a simple answer to that question. I let you say why you're running for president. Yeah. Answer that question. Tell me what you think uh, about it, the indictment. Do you it, think it shows that Donald Trump is fit to be president? I think what it shows uh, is that people are frustrated in this country, um, particularly Republicans who feel that there isn't an equal administration of justice. That's what happens when you go on national television to announce your presidential campaign without a good answer to the most important question facing the Republican field right now. It is something that everyone else in the race has started to figure out. And that is why they have all started to coalesce around a new line, a new talking point whenever they are asked about Donald Trump. And that strategy is blame the Department of Justice and the FBI. I think the DOJ and FBI have lost their way. I think that they've been weaponized against uh, Americans who think like me and you. We have seen the politicization at the Department of Justice for years and years. What we've seen over the last several years is the weaponization of the Department of Justice against the former president. The DOJ and FBI have lost all credibility with the American people. That is the new Republican line when it comes to Donald Trump's handling of classified documents. The Department of Justice and the FBI have been weaponized. And the person who is supposedly weaponizing those two organizations is, in their mind, Joe Biden. Now, never mind the fact that Joe Biden has stayed about as far away from Trump's prosecution as a sitting president possibly can, refusing to even comment on this case publicly. Conservatives have gone all in on the idea that this is Biden's secret plot. On the day of Trump's arraignment, Fox News ran this graphic alongside their coverage of Biden and Trump. Wannabe dictator speaks at the White House after having his political rival arrested. Fox later told NBC News that the Chiron was taken down immediately and was addressed internally. But that central idea that Biden is some kind of autocrat who has turned the justice system against Trump, that idea remains the focus of practically every Fox News segment about the special counsel's indictment. Meanwhile, Trump has taken all of this to a new level and has started saying things like this. I will appoint a real special prosecutor to go after the most corrupt president in the history of the United States of America, Joe Biden. And the entire Biden crime family name a special prosecutor. Okay, so the former president who wants to be president again is now openly vowing to turn the Department of Justice against his political enemies at the exact same time that his defenders are accusing Joe Biden of doing exactly that, which is wow. 
the hypocrisy here seems to be lost on most people in Trump's party because this vow or this campaign pledge or whatever you want to call this has now gained traction in the Republican Party on whole. Republicans have decided that the solution to this alleged plot between the executive branch and the Department of Justice is to erase the line that exists between the Department of Justice and the White House. Here is Governor Ron DeSantis in an interview on Fox News. Republican presidents have accepted the canard that the DOJ and FBI are, quote, independent. They are not independent agencies. They are part of the executive branch. They answer to the elected president of the United States. That view that the DOJ and the FBI should not be independent from the presidency is actually gaining traction among conservatives and not just the ones whose name end in Trump. The New York Times points out today, Mr. Trump's promise to use the Justice Department to go after his enemies fits into a larger movement on the on the right to gut the FBI and abandon the norm that the department should operate independently from the president. The most powerful conservative think tanks are working on plans that would go far beyond reforming the FBI, even though its Senate confirmed directors in the modern era have all been Republicans. They want to rip it up and start again. So President Biden, who has thus far maintained a strict division between himself and the Department of Justice, is accused of being a wannabe dictator by the Republican Party. And the GOP solution to this entirely phantom problem is to give a future president complete control over the Department of Justice, so long as that president is a Republican. Joining us now are Slate senior editor and host of the Amicus podcast, Dahlia Lithwick, and former Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill. Both are MSNBC legal analysts. Thank you both for joining me tonight. And Claire, let me just start first with you on the surreality and I guess hypocrisy of this moment to see Republicans accusing Joe Biden of being a wannabe dictator and then embracing a kind of new form of governing that would effectively allow the next Republican president to become a wannabe dictator. It's really weird. Um, first of all, Harvard Law School is calling Ron DeSantis. They want their law degree back. <laughs> um, you know, it is beyond embarrassing that he is an educated man who is spouting this stuff. The same thing with some of these other people who are saying, let's blow up you know, the rule of law in this country. They always want to talk about the founding fathers. You think the founding fathers would be good with this? That we would have some kind of king-like figure that could direct people to arrest people on a whim? You know, the rule of law held under Donald Trump because there were good men and women who made sure it did. Um, even though he tried to blow up that line. And think about this for a minute. If Joe Biden is somehow manipulating the Justice Department, why in the world would he leave a Trump prosecutor in charge of his own son's investigation? Yes. <laughs> That's a good point. You know, this is this this is so bizarre to me. I mean, he clearly is trying to stay so far away from this, just as they did in the Obama. I'll never forget in the Obama administration when I actually tried to talk to the president about what was going on in Ferguson. And he put up his hands and said, Claire. I will not talk about anything that has to do with DOJ. Will not talk about it. Uh, you're welcome to call DOJ and talk to them and make sure they know what you think you know, but I, I will not talk to you about it. That is the rule in this country. It's always been the rule. The only one who wants to blow that up is Donald Trump because he doesn't have either the facts or the law on his side. 
You know, um, Dahlia, I was surprised that it's not just Trump. It's the Heritage Foundation is now trying to make the case for blowing up the FBI. And I want to call everyone's attention to this great analysis that you have on Slate this week. And I'll read an excerpt from it. Yes, the legal walls are closing in. And as they do, for some, the power of these legal walls is crumbling before our eyes. The more criminal trouble Trump finds himself in, the more his political capital rises. The more the rule of law triumphs, the stronger the forces that hate the rule of law actually become. That is the conundrum of this moment, right, Dahlia? That the notion that this is the rule of law doing what it's supposed to do, you know, finding wrongdoing and prosecuting it. And at the same time, the after effect of that is to erode the power of the rule of law. I mean, I think, Alex, that this is the mistake we keep making is thinking that the rule of law or the legal system or accountability are ends in themselves. And that, you know, if Merrick Garland can just perform independence, if Joe Biden can just perform independence, if Jack Smith can just perform that he is acting independent of the White House, uh, then somehow the rule of law gets vindicated. And I think what we are learning very dispiritingly, as you say, is that the rule of law is not in, an end in itself and that all of these fancy Harvard Law accredited people uh, are perfectly happy to say this has nothing to do. I didn't read the indictment. Don't care what's in the indictment. Don't really care what the Presidential Records Act says or what the Espionage Act holds. Just want politics to win. And the way you do that, you obviate the need to have a legal conversation by simply saying the words witch hunt, saying the fixes in, saying deep state. And then everybody who believes in you doubts that a legal uh, resolution can ever be fair. And I think just the most depressing thing that I keep seeing is this statistic that says 76% of Republican primary voters are already convinced this is a purely partisan witch hunt investigation. And they know there's a threat to national security, that what was done, the underlying sort of predicate facts here are deeply, deeply damaging to national security and to you know relationships with allies and don't care because it's a witch hunt. And I think once you're at the point where politics has outrun the rule of law, where politics and power are an end in themselves, you get to this exact place where Whoever says witch hunt loudest, whoever says weaponize the Justice Department most ferociously wins the day. Yeah, well, it feels like the end of something and the beginning of something else. I mean, Claire, to Dahlia's point about the I don't care, I don't have to read the indictment. I was shocked that the bulwark reported this week that Chuck Grassley, the former chair of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, said about the indictment, I haven't read it at all. I'm not a legal analyst. I'm going to leave that to the professionals to tell us about it. I've read everything I can of secondary sources of it, but not the original. I mean, Claire, you know, Chuck Grassley, this person is the former chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee saying, I I can't read about that indictment. I'm not a legal analyst. Yeah, and he's the same guy that's running around saying that somehow um, the Justice Department is being weaponized. How do you know, Chuck? You know, stop running for a minute. God love you. He's a very old man who has kept himself in great shape physically. But mentally, he has got to absorb the fact that this indictment is full of evidence. It's evidence. And they don't want to read it because they don't want to be confronted with evidence. They're way more comfortable doing this. And, you know, my question for them 
is this, too. You know, the FBI is widely respected around the world in terms of its training, in terms of uh, the, the job they do, in terms of getting really bad guys that work worldwide and ones that particularly are good at doing crimes across state line, human trafficking, drugs, uh, money laundering, all kinds of complex crimes. What do these guys think are going to happen if they just fire everybody? What, all of a sudden, another FBI is going to spring up that's perfect? I, I don't even understand how this would work. Who enforces the federal law while they're busy going out and finding hundreds and hundreds of guys that work in sheriff's departments in some rural community that say, go Trump, and try to train them to do some of the most complex legal work, uh, investigative work in the world? I, I don't even understand how they can say this with a straight face. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, a, such an important point to make, which is what they're proposing is actually on its face ludicrous. And Dahlia, I would go to you on this notion of the unified, exe- the theory of the unified executive, the unified executive theory, the idea that the president has all the powers and all the powers are consolidated under him, which seems really in, 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 in unofficial legal parlance wackadoo. Right. But it is it is. Incre- I mean, it seems like this this theory is actually being embraced by some on the far right. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that and what kind of threat that poses to a free and fair democracy? I mean, it's so fascinating in that piece that you cite from The New York Times. The most amazing fact in it is that the big purveyor or one of the big purveyors of this theory that we should tear down the wall between the Justice Department and the White House and the Justice Department should just sort of serve at the pleasure and mercy of the president is none other than Jeffrey Clark who was the guy, you may recall, who Donald Trump wanted to be attorney general, not because he was fit to be attorney general, but because he was the only person at the DOJ who would have done whatever Donald Trump wanted done so he could stay in power. And so the notion that, you know, these post-Watergate reforms, these essential reforms that tried to construct a wall, the wall that, you know, Senator McCaskill describes between the DOJ and the White House, the notion that we're going to take that wall down so that we can construct an entire Justice Department that does nothing for four years, but go after the Bidens for no crime that has been named just for being Bidens. And that that is an idea that isn't being embraced under this theory of the unitary executive, this sort of monarchic theory of presidential power is shows to me how far we have moved. Even Bill Barr, the most sort of discredited uh, uh, Justice Department official that we had, pretended that there was a wall between the Justice Department and the White House. Now we're not pretending anymore. That's a far, far move in a couple of years. Claire, Biden has told the White House and aides to take a vow of silence on the topic of the indictment. He has directed the DNC to do the same. And I understand that from a legal perspective and to some degree a political one. But, you know, if these calls are met unanswered, I mean, what fills the void? Do you worry about that strategy? Well, it's scary. I mean, I I will admit um, seeing people that are as educated as Ron DeSantis and Jeffrey Clark and the Heritage Foundation and people who purport to be constitutional originalists um, spout this stuff is scary. And the fact that they're feeding it to Trump supporters and Republicans as fact when it's not is also scary because Dahlia's right. The rule of law is what we perceive it to be. 
Um, it is, it, people have to believe in it and they are doing incredible permanent damage. Now I will say this. I don't think most Americans want a president in charge of deciding who is prosecuted. And I think most Americans see that this is a serious case with real evidence. I wish the federal court would see the beauty of a televised trial in this instance. But regardless, I do think that most Americans will come down on the side of what Joe Biden believes in and what I believe in and what we all believe in. And that is cases should be decided on the facts and the law and nothing else. And I think that provision will win the day politically, even if the other side is feeding all this BS out to the, to, to their supporters. I, I appreciate you sounding a note of hope, Claire McCaskill and Dahlia Liftwick. Thank you both for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. You bet. Coming up, one South Carolina school district was shown this video about systemic racism. Wait till you hear what happened. Plus, Donald Trump's Donald Trump. Donald Trump's reputation for not paying his bills. That reputation is catching up with him at a really, really inconvenient time. That's up next. Stay with us. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now. Are you ready? Are you ready? Food for everyone. Food for On Tuesday, shortly after he was charged with 37 federal criminal counts, Donald Trump visited the Cuban restaurant Cafe Versailles in Miami. It's an iconic restaurant where politicians love to stop for photo ops. And while he was there, Trump promised to buy food for everyone. It was an unusually generous offer from Trump, who is not exactly known to have Santa-like instincts for giving. And so everyone cheered, and there were presumably warm feelings in the room, and yay, free cafecitos for everyone. Except no one got anything. The Miami New Times quotes a knowledgeable source who said that Donald Trump's stop at Versailles totaled about 10 minutes, leaving no time for anyone to eat anything, much less place an order. So, yeah, that sounds a little more familiar. Trump is not really known for paying his bills, after all. According to USA Today, Trump has been involved in more than 3,500 lawsuits, a large number of which involve workers who say Trump or his companies have refused to pay them. In 2021, Trump refused to pay Rudy Giuliani for his legal work, as in Rudy Giuliani, the lawyer who spearheaded Trump's bogus claims of election fraud. 
Last August, Fox Business reported that Truth Social stiffed a contractor out of more than a million dollars. A stand-up guy. Free food for everyone. This reputation is not helping Trump as he continues his search to find a lawyer to represent him in federal court in Florida. ABC News reported today that, quote, Trump's history of legal turnover has led some attorneys to turn him down, while others have asked for retainer fees that Trump's team views as excessive. However, multiple sources also tell ABC News that Trump has several options for lawyers who could join his legal defense. In the meantime, Trump's defense in Florida is being fronted by a man named Christopher Kais, a lawyer Trump retained last year and who made sure to get all of his money up front. Three million dollars, to be precise. Joining us now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama and, of course, co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. Joyce, it's always good to talk with you, and especially on a matter like this, where I think a lot of people are don't know what exactly lawyers would be doing at this stage of the game and why it is important for Trump to have counsel representing him. Can you um, could you shed some light on that for us? Sure. So this is a critical case to have a strong uh, defense team from the start. And one of the reasons we know that we saw Judge Cannon enter an order directing Trump's lawyers to proceed as quickly as possible uh, to get security clearances so they can begin to review the government's evidence in this case. That's not a job for one lawyer. It may not even be a job for two lawyers. Frankly, the evidence looks to be fairly complicated and voluminous. And the defense lawyers don't have a lot of time to get to work here. They'll need to prepare their motions. They need to review the classified documents. And under the SEPA statute, they'll have to indicate what they'd like to use at trial. A lot of work to do. You need your team in place to get there. Uh, Joyce, in terms of Judge Cannon, I know that there's been a lot of well, we spent a lot of time on her CV yesterday. Uh, a lot of people have focused on her rulings in the special master case, which were highly controversial and ultimately turned down, if you will. Um, she today, as you point out, added an order to Trump's docket. That would suggest she's not recusing herself from this case. Is that a fair assessment? And do you think at this point there is any chance she might? So I think she hasn't recused yet, but she has not been asked to. The Justice Department has not filed a motion asking her to recuse. We don't know what she would do if they file that motion. They may also decide to uh, play the long game here and wait and see if she makes an additional ruling that's sort of in the same category as her earlier rulings on the search warrant case, the sort of thing that they would take an appeal on and then ask the Court of Appeals to reassign or to have the chief judge reassign the same case to a different judge on remand. The, the real risk here for the government, though, is they can appeal her now. They can appeal her rulings pretrial. Once there's a jury seated and double jeopardy has attached, her rulings will determine in large part whether or not there's a conviction. She controls, for instance, what evidence will be admitted at trial. And if there's an acquittal, it's too late. DOJ lawyers, prosecutors don't get a second bite at that apple. Yeah, and I want to talk about that. What evidence is admitted seems to be a big, big, big question that Trump's lawyers would like to litigate. They are not happy with the piercing of the attorney-client privilege, the crime fraud exception that was uh, cited to effectively allow the DOJ access to Evan Corcoran, Trump's lawyer, um, his voice, me- voice memos that have played a huge, that play a huge role in the indictment. 
Do you think that there is a chance that Judge Cannon says these emails cannot be used or these voice memos cannot be used as evidence? None of the correspondence between Corcoran and Trump is admissible. Um, And how much stock should we put in the 11th Circuit in terms of acting as a check on Judge Cannon? So um, lots of complicated, difficult questions. And Alex, you know my crystal ball. I sort of try to not trot it out too often, but I will do it in, in one regard here to the last part of your question about the 11th Circuit. The 11th Circuit has a, a good track record on this case in particular, but in general over the sway of time. They believe in the rule of law. They follow the law. They're committed to doing that. They know how to move quickly when quick movement by the court is needed. I think we can have confidence, whether we like all of their rulings or not, I believe that the judges on that court will look at these issues and they will apply the law to the facts. And and that is something um, that we can have confidence in. You know, there are um, sophisticated nuances here, some involving the facts and some involving the law as to how Judge Cannon may look at this question of whether or not the government will be able to use evidence generated from Trump's lawyers. There's a little bit of an aspect uh, to this issue that, that this particular issue has already been decided in this case by a judge in the District of Columbia. Trump tried to take an appeal and the Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia told him, no, we, we believe that the judge's decision that the government is entitled to use what would normally be lawyer client material is one that will stand here. But there are still avenues to try to attack that. We're in a different circuit. That decision was made in a pre-indictment posture. So perhaps Trump's lawyers will get some some traction legally. But when you look at the facts here, at least to the extent that we have seen in, in this indictment, what the government is alleging it can prove, it seems quite clear that this is a strong case, as strong a case as I can remember seeing for piercing the attorney-client privilege. And when she gets down to considering the facts, she will have to rule the same way the judge in D.C. did. As we're speaking about lawyers and Evan Corcoran in particular, it strikes me as, in a word, bonkers that this person has offered the most damning evidence in this Mar-a-Lago indictment and continues to represent Donald Trump in the January 6th probe that is launched by the special counsel's office. Does that strike you as odd? I think bonkers is the perfect way to describe this. You know, I don't really know what to make of it. As a lawyer, you have ethical obligations. Uh, the bar in the state where your bar license is issued certainly will hold you accountable if you violate those rules. It's a little bit curious of a decision by a lawyer that they wouldn't step aside once a decision like this was made. Um, but Corcoran has maintained that he is not cooperating with the government, that he was in essence a hostile witness and testified only to the extent that he was forced to. So this is unusual to say the least. I think that's fair. Yeah. Well, also, given the difficulty that uh, the former president is having um, in finding new counsel, it might not be wise to get rid of the counsel he does have. Joyce Vance, thank you as always for making the time. Thanks, Alex. We, we still have much more to come this evening. Republicans are playing games with human lives and creating a humanitarian crisis for Democrats to clean up. Plus, what happens when you try and teach students about systemic racism in South Carolina? That's next.
Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place every day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning in your inbox, you'll find expert analysis, video highlights of your favorite shows. Running for re-election is when you actually get your report card from the American people. Previews from our podcasts and documentaries, as well as written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves. Understand today's news. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. This is Jamal. Jamal is a boy who lives in a poor neighborhood. He has a friend named Kevin who lives in a wealthy neighborhood. All of Jamal's neighbors are African-American and all of Kevin's neighbors are white. That video about systemic racism was part of an assignment that a high school teacher in South Carolina named Mary Wood that she gave to her AP language class back in February. The video was supposed to prepare students for a writing assignment based on ta Coates' book, Between the World and Me, an award-winning, best-selling memoir that details America's complicated racial past and its present. But Mary Wood's students never got to finish reading that book. Her school's administration stepped in and ordered her to stop teaching it in class after complaints from two students about the video you just saw. Last year, South Carolina state lawmakers passed a rule in the state budget that makes it illegal to use state money to teach any ideas related to race, including that an individual, by virtue of his race or sex, is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, and ideas that cause an individual to feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his race or sex. If that language sounds familiar, it is because it's almost an exact replica of language in Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's Stop Woke Act. And thanks to the emails those two students sent to a member of their school board, we know just how uncomfortable these students were. One email reads in part, hearing the teacher's opinion and watching these videos made me feel uncomfortable. I actually felt ashamed to be Caucasian. I understand an AP language where we are learning to develop an argument and have evidence to support it. Yet this topic is too heavy to discuss. Another wrote, I was incredibly uncomfortable and was in shock that she would do something illegal like that. The students sent their complaints not to the teacher, but to a sympathetic school board member who was instrumental in escalating the matter. That board member, Elizabeth Bernhardt, ran for and won her seat with an endorsement from the Lexington County chapter of Moms for Liberty. And Moms for Liberty is quite enthusiastic about what is happening in Mary Wood's classroom. Earlier this week, they retweeted, teaching critical thinking does not require indoctrination. Students are pushing back. Now, Moms for Liberty is an organization that first gained national attention by disrupting school board meetings in Florida over COVID policies intended to mitigate the spread of the virus. The group has since expanded its reach nationwide with what they say are 285 chapters in 44 states. And Moms for Liberty has expanded its focus as well to target books and the teaching of race, LGBTQ rights and other inclusive curricula. That mobilization prompted the Southern Poverty Law Center to designate Moms for Liberty an extremist group. 
Meanwhile, the group's influence is growing beyond the classroom. Last month, or later this month, they are planning to hold a summit in Philadelphia, and at least four Republican presidential candidates are expected to attend. Because right now, culture wars are Republican policy. Still to come tonight, 2024 presidential politics may be about to get weird. I mean, they already are kind of weird, but this time they're getting weird on the Democratic side. We are going to explain that. Plus, Republican governors are using human beings as pawns to score political points in a game that has no winners. We are going to tell you what Democrats are doing about it coming up next. At this point, the stunt has become very familiar. Migrants flown or bust from border states to liberal cities, often left in politically pointed locations, like outside of Vice President Kamala Harris's D.C. residence. These are not coordinated humanitarian efforts. They are stunts by Republican governors using people as pawns to own the libs, often giving less than a day's warning to the local governments and charity groups helping migrants in those liberal cities. It happened yesterday in Los Angeles. A local humanitarian group, the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights in Los Angeles, was tipped off just one night before Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott bussed 42 migrants to their city. According to that humanitarian group, the migrants, including children and toddlers, arrived in Los Angeles after a 23-hour bus ride without food, a claim that Governor Abbott denies. For many of these migrants, being shipped to a random liberal city means family separation and the disruption of their asylum claims. And that was the case for some of the migrants who arrived in L.A. yesterday. One migrant told the California humanitarian group that he had an immigration interview in New York, which he now risked missing. He said, I don't know how to read. I don't know what this paper says. All I know is that they told me I need to be somewhere in New York. Is that nearby? The group also told the New York Times that when they learned that Texas was busing migrants to L.A., they thought it could be a false alarm, like the many they had heard in the past. In the past two weeks, Governor Ron DeSantis flew 36 migrants to Sacramento, California. But the stunt has become so common that even though this was the first time a Republican governor sent migrants to California, the city was ready. Last night, L.A. Mayor Karen Bass disclosed that she directed the city to plan for an event like this last year. So yesterday, the migrants were immediately brought to a local church where they were given food and supplies and toys for the children. They were offered attorneys and help to getting to their actual intended destinations so that they might continue their legal immigration process. This is not a natural disaster that Los Angeles developed a contingency plan for. It is a man-made one, and one that is now repeated so frequently that responsibly running a city requires planning for stunts like these. Joining me now is Tim Miller, former communications director for Jeb Bush's 2016 presidential campaign and now writer-at-large for The Bulwark. Tim, thanks for being with me tonight. And I think the experience you had working with Jeb Bush is so critical in a moment like this when we try and understand how this sort of the cruelty, the expense, the the gamesmanship, that, that all of this became good optics for Republicans seeking higher office. I mean, how did we get to this point? 
Yeah, it is crazy how dramatically things change. You know, I mean, Jeb, uh, to, just as an example for how seriously he took this issue, and he wrote an entire book with chapter upon chapter. And I'm sure not all of your viewers agreed with every single suggestion he had, but the whole point of it was how can we come up with a you know, reasonable policy that, that balances, you know, securing our borders with being humane, being compassionate, remember compassionate conservatism. Um, and, and just the departure from that to what we're seeing now, just on both levels. One, it's not a serious effort to solve the crisis, right? It's not as if Greg, I would saying, oh, I'm going to go work with other governors. We need to share the burden. Right. I mean, I interviewed Jared Polis for the Bulwark. I, Jared Polis is the type of governor who's reasonable in Colorado. He's welcoming. He's libertarian. I, I have to imagine that's that's someone you could call up and cut a deal with uh, with Texas and say, hey, we'll share some of this burden. That's not what's happening. This is this is not an effort to solve this problem. It's a total troll. And it's a troll because, unfortunately, the reason why this has changed within the Republican Party is, is it what it is what Republican voters want. And, and the more relevant experience I have, unfortunately, Alex, is not the Jeb campaign, but last year during the midterm, going to a Carrie Lake and a Blake Masters event in, in Arizona, the DeSantis migrant stunt, the BS migrant stunt was the biggest applause line of the day for Blake Masters. Now, part of that was because he has no personality. But another part of that just shows that this is what re- the Republican voters are motivated by this. And that's the most depressing part about the whole thing. Yeah, and I, I and I remember you going to that um, that event, Tim. the The fact is, I mean, there's there's the economic cost, right? Uh, just if you're if you're an anti migrant state, that is going to cost you economically, given where labor is these days. There's also the fact that Ron DeSantis has filled his coffers with twelve million dollars allocated to really just own the libs by using migrants as pawns. He's taking Texas migrants and paying for their flights to liberal cities, which is on so many levels, absolutely. I keep using the word bonkers in this, pro- this, this, this program, but I, there is no other word for it. But the essence of this is what you point out. It's the cruelty piece. And to me, it seems like immigration has become this kind of county fair for Republicans to show off their cruelest policies. Why the lust to, to be mean to fellow human beings. Why is that? Why has that gotten such a toehold? Why is it? Why is that? Why is that seized the imagination of, of the GOP? Yeah. I mean, I think that there are a lot of underlying elements. I don't, I hate to blame everything on Trump, but I do think that Trump like did unleash people's darker angels. Right. I, you know, I, I just, I think that it's true. I think that people got a taste for this of enjoying watching him insult, degrade, demean people they didn't like, enjoy and make say things and propose policies that no one would ever have imagined, like a Muslim ban or things like this. And I think that opened the door to this and other copycats saw that, that there were these base instincts that, that, um, at, within the Republican within the Republican electorate that they had a response to this. And I just think that the DeSantis thing, to your point, it is such a category difference. You have to say this. I mean, the Greg Abbott thing is gross. And, and like I said, I, he at least is on a border. You know, I mean, the DeSantis thing is a purely performative stunt that, that paid for by Florida taxpayers. So it's not conservative in that sense. There is no substantive need for it. He's surrounded by water. He's not on a border. There is there is no policy that he's solving. It is purely a, hey, I know Republican voters will respond to me being mean 
to these uh, uh, migrants, and, and more importantly, being mean to the liberals, the so-called snooty liberals that we're, I'm going to send these these people to. And that is the sickest part about all this, at least with regards to DeSantis, is it's not even it's not even a policy issue that he's dealing with in the state. It's purely performative. Yeah. And it bears mentioning that DeSantis won 58 percent of the Latino vote in Florida, where he has enacted some of the most draconian immigration policy that's going to make it harder for migrants to go to the doctor. And it's beginning to um, it's beginning to affect his support among Latinos. I just wonder if you think that so publicly broadcasting a, a just deeply cruel policy towards people who also happen to be largely of Hispanic origin is going to be a problem for Republicans seeking to win a general election. I do. And this is the point. DeSantis did do that. And some of the rhetorical stuff was before the election. But the substance that was was not right. Like like this bill that they passed in Florida, for example, where where you have very deep punishments for people who are even traveling with you know migrants, giving aid to migrants traveling across the state with them, like bringing them from you know where where they might have uh, traveled to to another part of the state for shelter or whatever. Now there's felony penalties for that in Florida. So I, I do think that that will, will will hurt him. I think that he benefited. You know, we could do a whole show on why Ron DeSantis <laughs> ended up getting fifty eight percent. I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, his opponent and some of the COVID elements and there are other things, the Cuban community down there. But I, I do think that it's going to hurt Republicans. And interestingly, some with Latinos, but a big portion with the folks they've lost. College educated suburban Republicans, my people who are attracted to the compassionate conservatism, you know, and, and who have abandoned the party in droves. And, and those are people of every of every race, but a lot, a lot of white folks in the suburbs um, who, who are being turned off by this. And I think you're seeing that in Atlanta suburbs, Phoenix suburbs, you know, uh, Republicans being punished. And I think DeSantis would be punished in the same way that Trump would with those voters in particular. And then there's just the weight on one's own conscience to send toddlers on 23 hour long bus rides with no food. Tim Miller, thank you, my friend, for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. We have one more story for you this evening about how the 2024 race may be about to get weird for President Biden. That is next. You might remember this inflection point back in February of 2020. Following Representative Jim Clyburn's endorsement, candidate Joe Biden won the South Carolina primary, and that put him on a path to win the Democratic nomination. Since then, President Biden has signaled a desire to give big, diverse states like South Carolina a larger role in his party's nominating process. Back in December, Biden asked Democratic leaders to switch up the party's primary calendar for 2024. He asked for South Carolina to go first and leapfrog less diverse states like New Hampshire and Iowa. But last February, when the DNC officially voted to adopt South Carolina's promotion to the front of the pack, New Hampshire and Iowa were not happy. New Hampshire officials said they would ignore the change and argued that state law requires them to hold the presidential primary at least one week before any other state. Officials in Iowa have announced they're in the process of holding their contest on the same day as the Republican caucus, which is in January, also at the very front of the calendar. And here is where things could get weird. If Iowa or New Hampshire go rogue... President Biden, the man who is almost certain to win the Democratic nomination, may be forced to keep his name off those ballots for noncompliance. 
And that means that long shot candidates like anti-vaxxer Robert Kennedy Jr. or spiritual advisor Marianne Williamson, either of them could win the first two Democratic nominating contests of the year. If that scenario somehow does end up playing out, the DNC has warned it will strip those states of their national convention delegates, meaning their primaries would ultimately not count. Tomorrow in Minneapolis, the DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee plans to review and potentially finalize the primary plan. That is the show for tonight. I'll see you again tomorrow. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today.